Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we start with a question. Are we witnessing the collapse of conversation? One of life's great pleasures has always been the meeting of minds, irrespective of whether agreement is ever reached. For some years now, everyday conversations tend to be less than, well, conversational and way more brittle, disrupted by triggers real and imagined that elicit very real outbursts. So how did we get here? Is a simple conversation still possible? Turns out that this depends on the other participants and on whether our talking points are sufficiently bland. On this podcast, we talk a lot about stress-related issues. And I often mention that everything that we do daily is important in a way more profound than meets the eye. Part of the problem appears to be our shrinking bandwidth for tolerance, as it seems that many would sooner charge into battle than risk contaminating or desecrating their sound chambers. While much of the blame has been placed at the revolving door of of social media, to be fair, we sense that a single cause for such a marked social turnabout remains unlikely. Our guest, Ivan Obolensky, is here to tell us more. A brief bio follows. Ivan attended Buckley and the Hill School and spent a year at Lansing College in Sussex, England, before attending Boston University. He wrote in his youth, but it was never a passion. That changed in 2011 when he was hired by his wife, Mary Jo, to write articles on language and current affairs for a company's website which were then translated into Latin American Spanish. In 2012, Ivan attended a Long Ridge Writers Group course and started writing fiction under the tutelage of Tom Hyman. As their friendship developed, Tom Hyman became his editor. The short stories led the way to the novel Eye of the Moon. Ivan's unusual upbringing provides the background for a fascinating new novel that captures the American high society of the 1970s, weaving intrigue and the occult in a style uniquely his own that will enchant the reader. Ivan's novel novel is published in Latin American Spanish as El Ojo de la Luna. Ivan, welcome to Healthscape. This is such an important issue of our time. Thank you so very much for being here. Um, Trevor, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Why is social discourse so fragile these days? Jumping right into it, almost across the board, Ivan. I think there's, there's several factors involved. Um, social media, of course, plays a part in that. I think three things actually really come to mind. One was a study that was done in the 1980s uh, in England, and it was called uh, the Deficit Model of Scientific Communication. And um, this was, uh, I believe, a white paper, but anyway, it was, it was done with the idea of 
how do we get across scientific information to the public? And the idea was initially that the mind was like an empty bucket and mm. all you needed to do was pour it in and see what happened. But that turned out to be quite different once they actually started to check it out and, and really get to grips with it. And there's no such thing as an empty mind. What was found was that everybody had an opinion on subjects, even those they knew absolutely nothing about. They had some sort of, whether it was, okay, it was science, and so therefore it's complicated, I don't like it, whatever that was. And so what was determined that the way to do it was through people voicing their opinions, particularly on both sides of an issue. And out of this, we got the famous talking heads, which the financial uh, industry really capitalized on, CNBC. And that's pretty much where it started. And now it's, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. You will find you know, people mm -hmm. are always talking. And that is the way to, because you put in along with like a, a view, various facts, and then the other person turns around and says, oh, I disagree, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And this is how it goes. And that's how we communicate these days. Mm -hmm. Yes, for, uh, for I mean, sure. It's you see that on the news a lot, right? When you and have and it has its problems. Sorry. Exactly. Now, I think there's a problem with that because there are, you know, again, there is various models of how we think and how the mind works. Uh, one of them is that you start with a lizard brain and then you have an animal brain and then you have a primate brain and then you have a human brain. And above that, you have a critical thinking brain. And in and amongst that, you also have, you know, intuition. Uh, and the animal end of it is mostly an emotion because there is mm -hmm. such a thing as the quick and the dead. And emotions are the down and dirty way for people to decide. Uh, mm -hmm. You quickly decide whether you like something or not. And in the world uh, where you were a possible prey or, with, or you were a predator, you had to make up your mind quickly. And this was the means. Um, when you couple that with the, the, the model, uh, which was sort of worked out, um, it's no wonder because a lot of these, what was said, goes around opinion. And that means emotion. And those factors, so we have more emotional discourse, which is charged. One of the best uh, or largest is fear, of course. So fear sells. I mean, that's a fact. People get afraid and they pay attention. And this is the point of when you, you know, advertising dollars are basically spent on, on the number of eyes viewing something. It's no wonder <laughs> that we have right. what we have. Right. It's also the weight of investment, years and years of the belief system. And very few, I think the majority of people don't have the maturity to, if they do disagree, to just distance themselves. It's just too difficult. So you, one goes along kind of thing. Oh, I quite agree. And, and we've seen this before in, uh, in ancient Greece in particularly, propaganda pretty much started there, particularly when you have factionalism. That is no single person is in charge. And when you have many different power groups, all of them are vying for attention. And so things get rather heated uh, it took 
uh, Solon to sort it out to some degree. And even that, you know, only worked for a few hundred years. But that's that propaganda and is definitely a factor in it. And more and more um, that is being used by everybody. Public relations is something that's done every day by almost everyone, including individuals. Right, right. Yeah, and it's effective. <laughs> so that's <laughs> another reason for doing it, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a famous story of, you know, the, the battle of the currents, where, you know, in New York in the uh, late 1800s, it was, you know, whether it's going to be AC or DC. Well, Edison came up with, um, actually, it wasn't him, but one of his PR people came up with the idea of the electric chair in order to show just how potent a, um, you know, alternating current was and that it could be used to execute people. And this was actually put in effect. And people go, well, why do you have an electric chair? Well, it was a PR stunt. So this is something that is part and parcel for a very, very long time and has now so permeated, I think, the culture that it's very difficult to know what is really happening. What is the truth? What is the agenda? Where is the slant? Mm -hmm. Right. No, so it's, I, suppose, no, I suppose it would be no wonder that people get a little reticent on voicing what they really think. Well, yeah. But, you know, um, Ivan, what, what, you know, having been around for several decades, uh, as, you know, as many of the listeners, it, it seems to have accelerated. Uh, you know, there's the steady state. I mean, opinions have always been there and they're delightfully vague. So it gives one a lot of leeway. Um, but informed opinion, of course, is, an, is another animal altogether. But we've seen almost a fast forwarding of this instantaneous recognition that you disagree, that one disagrees with a person. And then it's immediately, you know, the sort of the retorts are more like opening salvos. They they hostile, right? And uh, it's 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 a battle for superiority. There was someone who once said that um, if you take debate out of conversation, it works better. And it seems like the conversations we have today are always um, uh, more than competitive, combative. Yes, and, and I can definitely see that, particularly on the ones that count. And right. um, because there are always issues. And, and I think one of the things also is the amount of time that is available. Um, this may sound bizarre, but there is a, a tremendous economic weight that the individual has to survive under in mm. the sense that he has to be working all the time. So right. time becomes essential but when you deal with you know sophisticated arguments and or sophisticated subjects right. the answers are rarely one single mm -hmm. one they're they're multiple and require you know a look and also taking the time to observe you know what is really going on and that requires research that requires sort of a vested interest. So where is this going to come from if all you have to do is you've got to be at work by this, pick up the kids by that, 
and you know and then i got sleep but you know well, that's how it goes <laughs> yeah yeah it's not it's not exactly the athenian academies where you could discuss at length going on for <laughs> days and weeks it's it's now more of a ref the reflection now is more like well i certainly put so and so in their place i think that's kind of where it ends and that we're the poorer for it um so the way you describe it, Ivan, and, and tell me if I'm missing something, is this was something that had to evolve and somehow, well, people call it like the perfect storm, it's, you know, circumstances, stressors lately, we've had enough of them, and still all this cluster of ongoing problems have brought it to a head or fast-tracked it? Is, is, is yeah, it's... Um, that is well i think one of the things that's happening also i mean there are of course you know there's light you have the corpuscular theory and you got the wave theory right um there is a thought that time travels also in a similar way um there is sort of a corpuscular sort of sort of where events happen and then there are the cycles of things um mm -hmm. in the united states um from if you look over history for a long period of time um, the history seems to go in patterns. They, they're not the same. They don't necessarily repeat, but they rhyme a lot. And I think one of the, it's about an 80 year cycle. And if you take 1776 and you add 80 years, you're right smack dab before the civil war. You know, you add 80 years to that and you're at the end of World War II and the beginning of, you know, big government. And mm -hmm. by the time you go another 80 years, we're in the present day. So, and usually those turning points at those cycles are, they're, it, they're, they're violent. Um, they tend to create, because it's like society has to figure out what is it really wish to be. In the Civil War, it was easier because the constitution didn't work because there was a civil war. Obviously it didn't work. Yeah. And so what do you do with that? And the Gettysburg Address comes to mind, which was, you know, harking back to the original document that founded America, which was, you know, for the people, by the people. And that became a major sort of a theme, which was built up. By the time you get into the end of World War II, you have, you know, what is the social net underneath society? What is that? supposed to be uh, the fact that you have to take care of people and that you know bad things happen and, and what is government to do and so therefore government has to be very very large when when you come to the present day you have two factors on it you have a very very large government which is to some degree unresponsive um, and then you also have the rise of technology and Technology is convenient and the, and the rise of convenience. And that is what technology really gives people and also what civilization provides. So, uh, civilization provides infrastructure. You mm -hmm. know, the, the way the means and methods which the individual can't quite, he, he could never afford it himself. He has to use what's already there because it's, it's like, you know, sending a, a FedEx to, to London from New York. I mean, you could go out and get a canoe and go for it, but you know, you're just gonna yeah. spend thousands of dollars by the time you're finished and uh, it only costs $50. This is infrastructure. And right. that's a really important 
element on it. So when you have people who have to work within that economic framework, and, and this is what they must do in order to participate in that convenience, um, they're between a rock and a hard place. And you're beginning to see that because the idea is that if it takes about 25,000 years for genetic changes to mm -hmm. permeate, at least from what we know of humans, and um, that may change with you know, more study of viruses, but it is definitely a, a factor. So we are pretty much like we were many, many thousands of years ago, even before there was agriculture, which means that we have to, there are certain things that really are important to the individual. One of those is you know, competence. I mean, you had the hunter-gatherers and they had to be competent or else they didn't eat. You also had autonomy in the sense that they, they chose their own way. They didn't have to follow what everybody said. They chose their own path. And um, then of course you have the connections of being part of a small group where everybody knows everybody. And that has a, a tremendous cohesion. And so you have that sort of element that's there. And, and you can see this throughout history, even going back to the ancient Egyptians. I mean. There was the marshes, and in the marshes were the people, and that was chaos was in there, and the pharaoh brought order. So you have this playing out. So now we have uh, a technology which is continually demanding usage, and that is restrictions. Because as soon as you go with one decision, you automatically discard all the other ones. So now the power of choice is, is definitely minimalized. And so when you have a people who are basically, you know, uh, want their own freedom. And then you have restrictions that are being placed on every side. There is bound to be something going on on it. And uh, there's going to be friction. And in some ways, this is what we're experiencing. And we have the society have to decide, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What's important? What isn't? Well, you, you raise a point. I mean, one certainly has the feeling that one is being funneled. Um, you know, uh, uh, for example, you, if the, the latest iterations on editing on various uh, platforms, um, the, the language is being, in my view, restricted. Like they don't like the passive voice. They don't like virtual negatives, like almost or perhaps um, and the, the problem I have with it is that it's not necessarily good English. And secondly, it seems to be driven by the untalented and the uninformed linguistically. So, but you do get this feeling there's, there's restriction, you know, it's offering as a, as a preferred alternative. And I have to ask myself for whom, because I don't like that edit. Well, so I don't do it. Just takes me much longer to edit a piece I write because I've got to go through all these options that move you more towards rally. Now it could have a, a legal incentive. It could have a, I don't know, some would say clarity. I don't know, I'm, but I do feel that I'm being funneled. Like when, you know, you, you want to um, separate, uh, you know, uh, separate into sort of like streams. So yes, I, I, to, I totally understand. I, I, it's the same thing. You know, again, you, go, you write with Word or something like that. And of course, it'll automatically say, you know, you know maybe, you know, you should, it's like you have choices. And, and again, you are being funneled. And I think that 
has to do a lot with, again, um, having to do with complexity. Um, if, the, if the universe goes towards complexity, I think that is a, a truism. And one of the things about from complexity theory is the higher level organization or organization exerts a downward pressure on the components that make it up. Um, I mean, in, in an extreme way, you have the whole uh, sodium chloride or table salt. I mean, sodium is a metal that's extraordinarily volatile and has to be stored in oil because if it comes in contact right. with water, it, it actually bursts in the flame. And then you have chlorine, which is very volatile in itself. And, but you put them together and it's now, you know, it's inert. And mm -hmm. so you have two very, very volatile things put together and they are inert. And that is what, in some ways, complexity, and when you go to high levels of highly organized societies and components, this, they exert downward pressure. And part of the downward pressure you're even experiencing in, in what you should speak and how you ought to say is that downward, you know, um, uh, it's that downward pressure because it, and it's all around us and we just don't notice how widespread it is. I mean, it even goes into the fact of music. Um, before there were CDs, you know, you had like, I don't know, 128,000, you know, bits per second that were put in there. Well, streaming is one tenth the amount of information. And that takes all the zing out of music. And when you remember that in the 60s, when you and I were growing up, well, good heavens, you know, rock and roll was the thing and it was played loud. And, um, but you know, the music these days, yeah, you may get a lot of something bass, but that's about it. Um, much of the zing that was in music has been taken out too. And why? Convenience. You get streaming, you can stream it anywhere, but the quality goes down. And so now we, we have that. And that is part, if you want to have streaming and if you want to listen to music on your phone, you're going to have to go with that with the program. That is, you're going to have to just suck it up and have, you know, music which is not as, um, how do I say it? It doesn't have all the nuance. Um, analog yeah. has always been the way to go if you've got a high-end yeah. audio system. I mean, you know, that's how you did it. You didn't do it with digital. Digital was mostly there to get rid of the hits. But yeah, that, and it, that's how it even that's that's how it started. I mean, that's they wanted they hated his because analog systems had his unless they were very high end. So digital took away from that and it took that away, and so but that was convenient. And here is where we are. Right. It's almost as if big tech wants to rescue us from option toxicity. There being too many options, and maybe even streamlining this decision. Uh, process, the decision process, no matter what it be about. Um, there's definitely this, um, it looks at first glance, it looks kind of for your convenience, but I don't know. I just think that we're losing stuff there a lot, actually. Yeah. And um, that's just me. And I have no theory about how that works. But let me hasten to add, uh, I'm just saying that you know, you start trusting your instincts because at what level is this working for me? And then I say, this is myself, very true. No discernible. That's totally correct. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that's also very true is, you know, when you look for genius, 
genius tends to be a bit revolutionary. They also tend to uh, disrupt a lot. And this has trouble because a society doesn't like that. But what happens to a society when there are no geniuses? Well, I think it goes off the cliff. Um, I, I think there are problems with that. I mean, there are the, uh, the rat experiments that were done by John Calhoun in Canada about the free feeding of, of rats and what happens to a population when that happens and the population explodes and then all of a sudden it plateaus for just a little bit and then absolutely craters. Uh, you have, you know, these certain type of rats called the the beautiful ones, that all they did was stand around and they had to scatter after they lay around and groomed themselves. That's all they did. They didn't do anything else. So we're beginning to see an awful lot of that type of thing in the society. And then we go back to even more fundamental is having to do with population density. And in some ways, many populations have built-in triggers when density levels reach a certain point in that they either move or they restrict themselves in some way um, so that they don't propagate so much. Um, And there is, there may be a lot of that going on. I mean, we are definitely seeing it in the developed world with, um, you know, their birth rates below 2.0. It takes about, what is it? I think 2.0. One, three, or whatever yes, children per couples in order to get a, just to keep a stable yes. population. And we have, we're, you know, you see numbers at 1.4, 1.3, 1.2, except in Africa and in some countries in Latin America. Now, right. eventually, that's going to be an issue. So that may already be in effect. And so what we're seeing, and again, if, you know, how much of this is thought out, how much of this is instinctual. How much of this is just, this is how we are built. And, you know, just to top it off, and, you know, because you get a lot of people say, oh, yes, well, we got, you know, the, the, the humans are a bunch of viruses that need to be extinguished. And you go, no. I mean, eventually, if life on this planet is to survive, it has to move to the stars because Jupiter eventually is going to sit there and pretty much set out the whole solar system is going to go. And it may be a long time until that happens, but for sure it's going to happen. So nature is going to basically support any species that can pretty much get itself into a different location. And humans are just as as much a part of nature as any other creature. Now, of course, we do have responsibility because we have awareness, but at the same time, you know, how is this all going to play out? And I think those are the decisions that we are coming across, and I think it's going to reach a bit of a crisis in the sense that how, how it's going to go through, and it's usually after the crisis, and there's this huge collision that people begin to make sense of it. During it, it's very hard to make sense. It's yes. usually after the fact that you can actually understand, well, what happened? Well, even to get past the noise when, while it's happening is, is a feat. Um, uh, we, we don't groom ourselves so much, but we do do selfies, just referring to that, exper- that experiment. Um, yeah, I actually heard about this experiment in the mid, it, well, it was mid-70s. 
when we started our first physiologic, uh, physiology uh, lecture at university. And they, at that, that point, they unoptimistically called it the death squared. I've never forgotten this episode. And uh, we, we assumed that it happened way back, but it was pretty new. And that's probably why it was brought up at all. Um, we need a, a quick commercial break. Um, so I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, talking to Ivan Obolensky about conversations and modern social discourse. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Given all the information that we've covered, you one still sees quite a lot of aggression, right? And what are the factors that are making us so eager to contest an attack? You're sort of almost becoming a community of pounceniks, as I prefer to call it, ready to pound. Is this just, <laughs> we get riled so often that we kind of stay in the state or, or what do you think, Ivan? I think that, I think there is a lot of that. I think part of that has to do with, okay, the less information that is available, the more easily it's able to be taken out of context. Okay. And context is important and establishing context takes time. Just to give you sort of an example and to steer this sort of somewhat back to conversation. Um, I had a music system at one time, uh, which I, I won't even tell you how much the damn thing cost, but it was really something. You could listen to it and you could get high on the music that was coming through it. It was amazing. You really, it's like, it was like nothing you'd ever heard about. If you hear one of these uh, and you have, then you are extraordinarily lucky because you all of a sudden know this is what sound is supposed to be like. This is what music is supposed to be like. Now, of course, we have, you know, again, we listen to it on our little headphones, on our little iPhones. But this also applies to conversations. Um, we are used to conversations, emails, tweets, whatever, and um, little visual blurbs. And this is sort of how we connect with each other. And that really is not connecting. It's a synthetic connection. Mm -hmm. And real connection comes with actually sitting down with somebody and talking to them. 
And the amount of, I mean, everything starts to come in. Uh, not only is it the environment in which you're having the conversation, but you know, what is the person looking like? What are they emanating? How are they nervous? Are they angry? And all of these things, but you begin to see, you get nuanced and you get yes. nuanced information, which allows you to interact in a better way. And the result is a deeper, more fundamental connection. And ultimately that is what we are all trying to somehow do. We try and find meaning in life. And mm -hmm. one of the ways to do that is to connect with others and realize that they are like us, we are like right. them. And that's a really, I mean, once you get that, it really, I, it's amazing, but it's, it's rare. And I think that requires all the ingredients of person-to-person -person contact. It requires time. You have to be able to sit down. And also, you have to, it's preamble. You can't just go into and talk mm -hmm. about your, your heart's deepest secrets, yes. you know, right off the bat to a stranger. It ain't going to happen. You have to establish trust. And these all require time. Right. And um, also your skill, you know, and a skill set to actually communicate it, you know, and listen. You actually, I mean, listen is not something you just, oh, what is he saying so I can now reply to it? No, listen is actually listening to the person and understanding what they are saying. And that, that, all these steps tend to be just thrown out. And so we have what we have and so of course you're going to get a lot of pounce mix and whatever because they're going to misinterpret at the drop of a hat and it's really easy because it's nuanced you can say i don't like this but like can take you know a thousand different connotations how much do you like it i sort of like it but not totally i mean again it's nuanced and you know you miss the nuance and by missing the nuance you miss you know, the significance of it. And so therefore you misunderstand. And, and I think that's, I, as a doctor, I'm sure you found this, you know, I mean, trying to get a patient oh, yeah. to tell you what's really going on. I mean, it right. does, you can't do that in about five minutes, can you? Well, yeah, this is what I talk about all the time. The consultation times are now so short, so brief. It assumes you've got a really eloquent person in coming in that's going to be really to the point and um, articulate, get right down to it and that just generally doesn't happen so it's very hard yeah. to manage chronic conditions these days through the doctor's office um, I, mean, I would think so it. and also the person would have to know what was wrong with them and one of the things on conversation is you go to another level with a different complete understanding oftentimes people have to talk about something to understand it themselves so that, you know, they go into a doctor's office and say, I've got a, but they don't know what the blank is. You know, they can't even describe what that is. And so that takes time. And, you know, it, it, this is, you know, real, as you said, you know, it takes a consultation and it may take some, several of them, I would think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and this, this is the problem. We, you know, there was a time when, when things had sped up so much technology, it was the same instant gratification comes way too late. That was kind of just like a saying, but um, this is now extended to everything. People want, uh, you know, they want, they, they, they don't want to do the time. 
and expertise requires not just a lot of study but a lot of usage and a lot of reflection and right. if you speak to I mean, any here's an, sorry you go ahead now, if you speak to you any speak academic to any... worth their salt, you know, notoriously in most countries, they're not, you know, they're not highly paid, or some are, I suspect, but they'll tell you that the biggest bonus to their job is time to reflect with colleagues, valued colleagues. Um, that's part that, if, unless you're in that circle, you, you don't really think of too much or, or measure in any way, but that is indispensable. It's priceless, in fact. Uh, and, and very few people at very few places of work is there time for any reflection. You can, you're free to go home and reflect between two and 4 a.m. in the morning kind of thing. Well, that's not the same. It's, it's in the moment and then to be able to bounce it off a colleague and so forth, maybe not right away, but within a reasonable time. And that, that's all but gone, I think. I think so too. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, I'm a writer, right? So. I put out one novel, I put out a second novel. I have, you know, many fans that were eager to read the second one because they liked the first one so much. Still, I even, you know, some of the dear ones and those who are pretty influential and, you know, they were really captivated by it. I sent it to them. And do you know that probably less than, I'd say about a, third read it even though they wanted to right and they said they would and they knew me so of course they were sort of they were on the record as saying yes i'm going to do this and they didn't and i find that absolutely fascinating because it means that they are so compressed in terms of their time and, and their attention yes. that they cannot take the time to actually read and I think that is like, that's, that's extraordinary. Yeah, that happens a lot. I, mean, I remember the, a movie from the 70s, Jill Clayburgh, who was an excellent actress. Um, I'm dancing as fast as I can. And sometimes mm -hmm. when one has to juggle a lot of things, that, that becomes just the title alone, uh, becomes very memorable and apt to describe the times we're living in. Yes. And, and, I, and again, it's, so what do you do? How do you deal with it? Um, I think a lot of it comes from recognizing that one is compelled to act in certain ways and that you have to be, become aware of those compulsions, particularly from exterior influences. And you have to make and take a very hard look at whether or not the convenience offered is, you know, greater than I suppose the amount of effort one will have to expend in order to do without. Yes. And to me, that is like one of the key questions that this society has to work out. And I think the, the word is viability. And I think it's a fantastic word, mm. but you, uh, one of the things I decided, I mean, that's one of the great things about you and I, we're old, <laughs> older. <laughs> okay, we've, been, we've lived a bunch of times. Yeah. You know, what yeah. comes with that is the ability to say, you know, I don't like it. I don't want it. I'm not going to do it. 
And one of the things I think we all have that is it has to work for me. That is to say, if I'm going to go, okay, just as a really stupid example, I mean, I was going to this, uh, this seminar and they recommended that you don't drink coffee. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have my coffee in the morning. And, you know, and it's just, that's the way it's going to be. And I'll do the seminar, but it's going to be done on my terms. And I think we all have to sort of go to that point of how is this going to work? And it's not just some self-centered thing. It's in order to, for you to sustain yourself in a way where you don't go crazy and you don't get depressed and you don't, you know, take your own life. You don't just, you know, beat your head against the wall. You have to work out how to do it in a way that works for you, that is sustainable for you, that you can live with. And I think that is something which we all have to really, you know, put our wits around. And, you know, I I imagine a lot of people are probably trying to do the very same thing, but that voice, that consensus, which may is not vocal at this point, is all of a sudden going to come out. And I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but I have a funny feeling we're going to see it. Yeah, I, I have a bit of advice, which has uh, valid, uh, validity and, and I believe value um, that I, I'd like to offer at this point. I interviewed a colleague and he was talking, he's a physician, he was talking um, about nature deficit disorder. Now, spending more time in nature doesn't give you more time because now you're spending time in nature where you didn't spend before. But what it does do, it gives one perspective and suddenly the priorities, this has been my personal experience and the talk wasn't about that. The priorities become more obvious because one is more in touch with what is really important. And I mean, often when we in that do mode, you know, it's career-wise or, um, you know, getting ahead or so forth. But when you, in nature, it's like, okay, Trevor, the crap stops here. Uh, I carry on no matter where, what happens to you. Um, it's 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 a, a sobering and humbling and nourishing all at the same time. That, that's the only descriptors I can come up with right now. Uh, because although I know it, I haven't really reflected on, on it that much. But I think that could be part of the answer. It's true. One of the things I noticed for myself, which was a huge shift for me, was I noticed I always had an agenda. You know, people mm-hmm. seem to always have agendas. Everything around us has an agenda. Whether it's to sell it, to get rid of it, to do this, there's an agenda. But Life will tell you what it wants, mm-hmm. provided you can listen. And when you're, I mean, I go off, um, I live in Uruguay, and um, we visited a, a place called uh, Laguna Rocha. And it is, I mean, it's just a campo, which means it's flat, it's got birds, it's got whatever. But out in the middle of this place, it is quiet. There is nothing happening. I mean, it is so quiet. You have to sit there and just, you have to sit in it for a while. But it's very interesting because all of a sudden, you know, your mind quiet. There was a very interesting study that was done. It was done by these people. There's a book called Being Caribou of All Things. 
And it was about these guys who went up into the Arctic to follow the caribou herd. And they went off and they, they we were in the middle of nowhere um, in the Arctic tundra um, in the spring. And uh, there was no cell phone service, no nothing. And they didn't have anything except for themselves. And you could hear yourself breathe. It was got traumatized. <laughs> so right. these guys, you know, it, they went through withdrawal symptoms for about, about two or three yeah. weeks. But yeah. it was really fascinating because they were saying they could never find the herd. They needed to find the herd. Well, one day they were going along and they said, you know, if we just sit here for a minute. And sure enough, the herd showed up. And then they started going, where's the herd? You know, I just get the sense that it's over there. And so they went and they, and sure enough, they found the herd. So then they come back to civilization and um, the, uh, they gave a lecture at this Intuit, Inuit um, camp. And some of the people came up to them, gosh, you sound exactly like our grandfather and grandmother. And they said, what, in what we said? Oh no, nothing to do with that. It was the cadence. Yes. The way you spoke, the right. softness, and the what the number, the words per unit of time was such. Right. And they realized that they not only did they sort of tap into their intuition, and life told them where the caribou herd was, but they sort of they went into something extraordinarily primal. And I, I, I think you're right. I mean, nature will do it. Provided you're not out there, you know, even taking photographs, if you're just out there being there and nothing. Yes. So, so Ivan, I come to you and I say, Ivan, I'm working hard. I'm dancing as fast as I can. I feel I can do so much more. I think that's true of, of all of us. Well, we can do more, put it that way. What, what, what are your advice tips? Um, what, I mean, obviously it will be a change of perspective, a change of approach, I would imagine. Um, little things, you know, I always say little things, uh, it's, it's kind of everyone says, so what, when they hear about a little thing, but they add up and the, they often, the increase or, or in benefit is not additive, it's summative, you know, where three things together give you an advantage like you can't believe. Do you have some I, guidelines or there's, there's three things I'd, yeah, I'd like to say on this. Um, one, I don't think anybody's going to like, but um, the first one is you have to wait till you grow up. And believe it or not, there's nurture and there's nature. Most of your genetic proclivities are in evidence by the time you're 50. Um, you're, and, and I tell you, where the nature and the nurture are in conflict, oftentimes you have you know, midlife crisis where the person doesn't know. But oftentimes, by the time you're about 50 or 60 years old, you begin to realize why, what you're doing here. And I think that's something which, you know, everybody goes, oh, there's got to be a faster way. <laughs> yeah, I know, there is, yeah. but, you know, there's problems with that. But the fact of the matter is you got to live that long. That's right. one thing. And I know people go, oh, are you kidding me? Okay, so that's one little thing. The second thing, I think, is to be polite. You have to learn manners. Now, this may sound stupid, but I'll tell you, the great communicators that I have spoken with, 
And the people who really, you know, had their stuff together when it came to that, they, their manners were impeccable. I love going to Texas. Why? Because everybody there pretty much is damn polite. I enjoy that. And it sort of, all of a sudden, it does something. So that's something that you can emanate in the world and do. Now, the last thing, which is really pretty simple, is what do you do? How do you hang, handle an angry man? And that's a more angry woman, for that matter. Um, well, there is a way. You whisper. Um, it's something which you won't believe. It's something which you will think I'm crazy about. But it's something, it's one of those grand experiments. You know, there's nothing like, you know, learning that this might be a technique that works and then going for the try it out you know, to see if it does and see what happens. Well, try whispering and you'll see the most remarkable changes. And the other person won't even notice it, but their whole volume goes right down and right. it starts to match where you are. And then if you're you know, smart and you don't necessarily, you know, just rile them up again, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, you can ask questions. Right. Franklin did this. Benjamin Franklin. I mean, this guy, you know, I tell you, he was the most contentious individual. You know, they sent him off to, to England to deal with the pens because the pens were taking, you know, Pennsylvania. Well, yes. these guys were having a lot of political advantage and he got into lots of fights and things like this. Well, he found out that um, arguing didn't necessarily work, but asking questions did. You know, why do you feel that way? You know, and listening. You know, and these are just, I mean, those are the three things that seem so simple, but, you know, everybody can do them and they do make a difference. So one of them is live longer and, you know, live till you're older. And I tell you, a lot of things sort themselves out with that. And, uh, you know, you may not like that, but that happens to be a truth. And, you know, in a society where, you know, waiting is, you know, definitely stressful, well, you know, sorry, but that's the way it is. You're going to have to do that. So, and then the thing is, you have to be polite to people. You know, in in uh, in where I, where I live, everybody says when dia. I mean, it's like you know, it's like almost a set piece, right? At the beginning, you right. always say, "Well, how are you? How's your family?" What about that? It's almost a thing, and you get into this whole thing before you deal with the thing that you need to talk about. This happens. But it sets the stage. And that's a really important thing. Yes. And the last thing is, when you do deal with people that are emotionally out of control and are freaking out, for God's sake, don't do the same thing. Because no. all you're going to get is a fight. So the thing no. you do is go, I mean, literally, very softly. And if that doesn't work, you know, I once did this. It was really funny. I reached into my pocket. I had a little piece of Kleenex, you know, a tiny little bit. I took the guy's hand put the little piece in his hand and gave it back to him. And, you know, he just, it just stopped him dead in the water. And he went, whoa, why did you do that? And what do you know? We were back in conversation after that. Yeah, I think. So you... Anyway, those. Sorry. That's an extreme, that's an extreme thing. But, you know, you'd be surprised how that concept does work. Well, I can see how you avoid the aggressive ratchet because it sort of, it, it goes up in stages and then one, it escalates, right? And I think by remaining quiet, the other person, um, the other person, by def, well, by contrast, starts feeling like maybe they're behaving in a histrionic way. 
uh, well, hopefully they get to that point. Um, I don't know if depending on where you are in the world, I don't know whether reaching in your pocket is a good idea when the shouting starts. But you're totally correct. But right. Yeah, but you know, uh, excellent. Uh, we're rapidly running out of time. Ivan, this has been very enjoyable. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground studies and uh, you know the rat population and so forth. Um, we we really have to do another episode if if you're open to it, please. Um, oh, I'm absolutely. And by the way, those John Calhoun things are on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's all these experiments. It's unbelievable. I mean, you go, are you kidding? Well, yeah, I was about to say, are you kidding? So, um, yeah, thank you very much for agreeing to speak, um, to have the conversation. Uh, I think uh, it's been very interesting to most people, I suspect. And um, yeah, we look forward to picking up a conversation similar or the same. I think there's a lot to be said about this topic. This is Dr. Trevor. By the way, Sorry. one last thing, Trevor. I started your book. It's really good. Very clearly written. Thank you. Oh, oh, thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's uh, it, it fills a gap, I feel. So thank you for that. Um, this is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape. Uh, we've, I've been talking to Ivan Obolensky. We will speak again next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.